Well, Dr. Philip Riken was the senior pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia before becoming the 8th president of Wheaton College. At Wheaton, Phil has championed the value of global learning, developing cross-cultural competency, and engaging with the global church. That vision is rooted in Scripture, where we see the kingdom of God becoming more multi-ethnic and multicultural in anticipation of the second coming of Jesus Christ. So, Phil, we look forward to hearing from you this morning. Churches that make an eternal difference for the cause of Christ, let me say that again, churches that make an eternal difference for the cause of Christ are always churches that believe they are one center for what God is doing in the entire world. Think, for example, of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, where Charles Spurgeon said the Christian church was designed from the beginning to be aggressive. It was not intended to remain stationary at any, at any point, but to advance onward until its boundaries became commensurate with the uttermost part of the earth. It was not intended, Spurgeon said, to radiate from one central point only, but to form numerous centers from which its influence might spread to the surrounding parts. Or think of Calvin's church in Geneva, where at the end of almost every sermon, Calvin would pray the same prayer for the missionary work of the gospel. In fact, one historian has estimated if you were there for the whole course of Calvin's ministry when he was preaching as many as five or more times a week, you could have heard this prayer 2,500 times. Oh God, grant this grace not only to us, Calvin would pray, but to all people and nations of the earth, bringing back souls from the bondage of darkness to the way of salvation, and to that end, raise up true and faithful servants of your word, that your glory may shine over all, and your kingdom, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, be advanced more and more. Or think of College Church in Wheaton, Illinois, where there is a huge globe on the stage this morning, reminding us that we are here for a, uh, the fall festival of missions and thinking together about the open door that God is giving us for the gospel. Think of all the scores of missionaries that this congregation has sent out over many decades and the many servants of Jesus Christ serving in many places in the world right now, vitally connected to the life of this congregation. I have to say I was excited when Bruce Wilson invited me uh, to speak at this fall festival, not, not simply because I love preaching and love any opportunity I have to serve college church, but also because of the theme of this year's conference, this festival, and how appropriate it is for our context. You, you may know that Wheaton College is across the street. You may know that for more than 150 years, we have been sending out servants of Jesus Christ to many places in the world to carry the gospel. But it's not just Wheaton College. It's Trinity, and it's Moody, and it's all of the schools and seminaries that have some connection to college church. We are in a very fertile part of the world for education and for the opportunities that it opens for the gospel. And then I think of all of the 
international students in our community. I was interested to learn that there are more than 34,000 international students in the state of Illinois, and so many of them are in the greater Chicagoland area. They are all around us. I mean, really, can you think of a better missionary theme for College Church than this year's theme of an open door for the gospel through education, thinking of education as a vehicle for sharing the good news of Jesus Christ? I had another reason for being excited about this theme, because Pastor Wilson, the text that he offered me was 1 Corinthians 16 where the Apostle Paul talks about having this wide door for effective work. And the first thing I thought about was that's one of Calvin's favorite texts for the missionary work of the gospel. And Calvin's Church in Geneva is an amazing example of education as a vehicle for spreading the gospel. So let me start with our biblical context. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 16. We have two cities that we need to keep straight this morning, at least two cities, Ephesus and Corinth. Paul is in Ephesus writing to Corinth and telling the Corinthians that he hopes to to visit them soon and speak with them in person. Uh, Paul was a good pastor. He had planted this church through the preaching of the gospel. He wanted to go and see how people were doing and, and connect with them again. And so, In 1 Corinthians 16, as he comes to the end of his letter, beginning at verse 5, he says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go, for I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. You get a sense here of the personal connection of the partnership in the gospel and also of this desire to renew a personal connection, the kind of connection so many workers are hoping to make with College Church in their visit for this festival. But in the meantime, Paul had some very important work to do. The missionary work he was always doing of preaching the gospel and trying to establish new churches. And at the time of this writing, he was in Ephesus And he was doing his gospel work in an educational context, giving public lectures at the Hall of Tyrannus and then going out into the streets to share the gospel with his students and with others, continuing the conversation, not just in the academy, but out on the streets. And so he says here in verse 8, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for, note well, a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Now, this morning I have from this text for us three simple, I think, and I hope practical lessons about the missionary work of the church, something for every congregation that understands we are one center for what God is doing in the entire world. Notice first the constraint of the call, the constraint of of the call. Paul expresses here his personal desire to spend more time with the Corinthians, but he's also acknowledging here, I am not at liberty simply to do what I want to do, because I am a man whose life is submitted to the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. That's clear from this little phrase at the end of verse 7, where he says, if the Lord permits. Not just a pious 
cliche for the Apostle Paul. It's the commitment of his entire life. And just at that moment, his calling constrained him to remain in Ephesus and preach the gospel. Every servant of Jesus Christ is constrained by his or her calling. When we give our lives to Christ, from then on, we are duty-bound to do what God tells us to do, to go where God calls us to go, and even to stay where He tells us to stay. Whatever plans we have of our own, they have to be surrendered to God's will. The Bephesus have given us a good testimony of that in their own lives this morning. I wonder, are you where God wants you to be? Are you doing the things that God is calling you to do? A great example of the constraint of God's call comes from the life of John Calvin, who I mentioned earlier. I mentioned his church in Geneva as an example of education as a vehicle for the gospel, and I'll be giving several illustrations of that this morning. But it's interesting to know that Calvin never even wanted to go to Geneva. All he really wanted to do was sit in his study and write more books like his famous institutes, but at a time of Catholic ascendancy in France... Families like Calvin's family were given six months to leave the country, and so he traveled to Switzerland. He was intending to go to Strasbourg, stayed in Geneva just for a night, he thought. But on that night, somebody, someone in town who was on the what we would call today the pastoral selection committee for the church in Geneva heard that the famous John Calvin was staying at a local inn and went to see him that night and begged with him, pleaded with him, implored with him, and, and really directed him that God was telling him that he should stay in Geneva and be their pastor. Well, Calvin was a scholar, not a shepherd, but he sensed in that conversation God's call on his life. He was constrained by it. Later in the providence of God, Calvin left Geneva for a season, actually was driven out by his opponents in the church. Then they realized, what have we done? We've uh, just uh, fired John Calvin. We've got to get him back here. And uh, several years later, they pleaded and implored with him to come back to the church in Geneva. Uh, Calvin said, rather would I submit to death a hundred times over than to that cross. But that was God's cross for him, and he recognized that constraint that God was calling him to serve those people in that place. One example of the calling that every believer has to follow the call of Christ. I'm, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that God probably wants you to do something that you don't want to do. Sometimes we get that idea in our minds. The point really is whatever it is that God has called you to do and however He works in His life to reveal that to you, The thing to do is to get on with God's calling. You are called in this season of life to be a student or to be a teacher or a counselor. You are called perhaps to be a missionary with the gospel or perhaps to serve in one of the thousands of ordinary callings that have the blessing of God in ordinary life. But whatever it is, That calling should constrain you as a place where God has called you to His service and where you can serve under God's grace in the name of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. For so many people in this church, that calling is connected to education. Is your life open to God's calling within the sphere of influence that God has given you? I believe for a believer in Christ, the answer always has to be yes to the calling of of Christ. When you gave your life to Christ, it wasn't just for the forgiveness of your sins. It was for everything else for the rest of your life. 
I love the story that Michael, I heard once heard Michael Cassidy tell at a worship service like this one. It was a congregation focusing on the missionary work of the church. Michael Cassidy, a powerful evangelist and evangelical statesman in the nation of South Africa. And as he was preaching, there was a little boy in that church that began to sense that God was calling him and maybe even calling him to be a missionary. And as he sat in the pew, he said, God, if if that's really you speaking to me, give me some kind of sign. Well, Cassidy came to the end of his sermon. He invited the congregation to pray with him, and the little boy was praying about these things. When he opened his eyes after the prayer, the first thing that he saw was the flag of South Africa hanging vertically. And if you know the flag of South Africa, you know if you hang it that way, the lines of the flag make a huge Y. In fact, you could, uh, if we unfurled the South African flag up there, which is the third from the left, and you've pulled it out, you could see what I mean. When the little boy saw that Y, he said, Y is for yes. God is telling me, yes, that's my calling for you. Well, I don't know how God's going to reveal His calling to you. I hope He does it in the context of the ministry of His Word. But I know that if you pray with a heart of openness for God's calling, He will make that calling clear in your life and then give you the grace to fulfill it. Well, there's a reason our calling ought to constrain us And that is because that place where God has called us to serve, that is the place where we have an opportunity for doing God's work. And so consider, secondly, the openness of the door, the openness of the door. As he looked at the situation in Ephesus with all of its possibilities, Paul saw what you see in front of you this morning, an open door, what he called a wide door for effective work that has opened to me. This is why he, he couldn't go to the Corinthians, but he was constrained to stay in Ephesus. The Holy Spirit was opening this door for him. As Calvin uh, studied and taught and preached on this passage, he referred to it as a great door, kind of language that would have been used in Calvin's day in Europe to refer to those massive portals to castles and cathedrals. It was a door that big, as Calvin saw it, that was open for the Apostle Paul. Now, the people who received this letter, the Corinthians, knew all about open doors. That was the place, Corinth was the city, where Paul, when he first arrived in the city to proclaim the gospel, met Priscilla and Aquila, fellow tent makers from Jerusalem, and Paul struck up a friendship with them, and they became partners in the gospel. I think today we would call them part of the core group for his church plant. There were other people that Paul met in those early days. Crispus, the ruler of the local synagogue, he came to Christ. So did the man Titius Justus, a public official who lived right next door to this church. He saw the church meeting next to them. A friendship began. He was interested in spiritual things. He came to Christ. Scripture says that in those days in Corinth, many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. It was Jews and Gentiles. It was wealthy people and poor people. It was neighbors and strangers. But whoever they were, God was opening the door to their hearts. And that door would remain open. Corinth is the place where the Lord Jesus Himself told Paul that He would be with him and he should stay there and do the work of the gospel. I have many people in this city. Many people would come to faith in Christ through Paul's ministry. He stayed there a year and a half, establishing the church there. 
And now Paul was writing from a distance to those Corinthians, and he was telling them, look, there's, you know what kind of open door there was for me in your city. There's an open door for me like that now in Ephesus. It started with 12 men who were baptized and received the Holy Spirit. It continued in the local synagogue, then at the, the hall of Tyrannus, and Paul was proclaiming the gospel there day after day after day, week after week, year after year, two full years. He went out into the marketplace because God had done what Paul says here that God had done. He had opened a wide door for effective work. But you know, that's what God always does. By the power of the Holy Spirit, as we proclaim the gospel, there is an open door for the ministry of that gospel. Something Calvin saw in Geneva, he said, a door has been opened for us by the hand of God. It's a beautiful, powerful image. God himself opening the door, turning the handle, swinging it wide in order, Calvin said, that we might introduce Christ. Here is the calling of every Christian as that door is presented for us to introduce Christ, to introduce people to Him and to His saving work. And Calvin did that in Geneva. He preached the gospel. He, people came to faith in Christ, and Reformation came to that city, not just to the congregation, but to the daily life of the city. And the reason I, one of the reasons I use it as an example is not just because this was such a favorite text for Calvin, but also because so many of the people that were touched by that ministry were internationals. If you don't know, it's a dramatic fact that the city of Geneva in a very short period of time went from 10,000 to 20,000. The population doubled and it was a huge influx of people from other parts of Europe, people from other nations. I mean, just imagine in the city of Wheaton, which is about 50,000, of the population growing in just a matter of a couple of years to 100,000, and that whole immigration population coming from various nations of the world. Just imagine the opportunity that that presented for the gospel. Refugees came. They were welcomed in the name of Christ. They were welcomed right into people's homes. Where else could they go? You can't just double the size of a city and and have people accommodated right away. They were welcomed into the homes of believers in Geneva. Calvin saw the need for schooling, and there was education for boys and girls. There was a training program for people preparing for ministry. Eventually, workers were coming from other parts of Europe to study there. They wanted to learn about missions and evangelism. And that work then spread to the rest, particularly of the French-speaking world. One church historian describes that congregation as a dynamic center from which vital missionary energy radiated out into the world beyond. Surely that should be our prayer and hope for College Church, that there's a vital missionary energy here that is radiating out into the world beyond. We've seen it just even from briefly being introduced to workers this morning. All of the different places they serve, all of the different kinds of work that they are doing. Calvin said it was his belief that God has commanded us to go a distance in order to spread the doctrine of salvation in every part of the world. I wonder, what distance would you be willing to go so that someone else could come to faith in Jesus Christ? I tell you, the work of that congregation with that kind of vision and the results were were staggering. In the year 1555, there were only five evangelical congregations in in France. So, So great had the persecution of the church been. 
But just four years later, because of the evangelists sent out from Geneva, there were over a hundred churches, and just three years after that, there were more than 2,000, because those evangelists started churches that evangelized other places, and the gospel spread from place to place, Paris, Lyon, Toulouse, Bordeaux. The list of cities goes on and on. One of those congregations had more than 8,000 members. It was all because there was this place, this congregation in Geneva that was an educational center where people were being trained, and then that became a vehicle that, that created open doors for the gospel. By God's grace, there are open doors for us here from Wheaton, Illinois. There's an open door here in DuPage County. Some of the fastest growing immigration in the country is happening right here in DuPage County. And so many of those people are here for education or are in need of education, particularly the children and the young people in those families. I love the story Becky Wilson told us last year. I'm sure many of you remember it about the woman from China that she A friend had just met her at a local playground. They had a connection um, partly through school. They also, Becky invited her to women's Bible studies, and eventually in the providence of God, that woman came to faith in Christ. She had a wonderful way of describing it. She said, it's like up until now I've been living in black and white, and now everything is in living color. Wouldn't you love to have the opportunity for all of the people in our community, maybe especially internationals that are still only living in black and white, to see them come to see life in living color because of the way Jesus Christ, who created everything and is the Savior of the world, brings life and color to everything. Or I think of the testimony that was shared to me of a graduate student from Iran who came to faith in Jesus Christ through the witness of a couple in this church. I'll never forget the moment I gave my life to Jesus, he said, I was born into a traditional Muslim family. Everything I ever learned about God told me that a price had to be paid to earn paradise. But that night I understood that Jesus paid the price for me. I realized I was going to die as a sinner. I needed Jesus to save me from my sin. I asked Jesus to forgive me and save me. And he gives this testimony of of gratitude to God for his saving work in his life. But at the end of that testimony, he also closes by thanking the man and his wife who prayed for him and who helped him commit his life to Christ. That's an eternal debt of gratitude, and it's an important part of the story. There has to be a person there somewhere who is showing you the open door. That's an opportunity we have right here in this community. It's also an opportunity through education all over the world. I go down the list of workers from College Church. So many of them had significant educational experiences in this community and now are using education as a vehicle for spreading the gospel in other places. I have to say, even in just a couple of years at the college, I'm already grateful to have in my stack of prayer items communications from very recent alumni of Wheaton College that are serving the world and other serving Christ in other parts of the world. You look at the college church list, so many of those people are in Muslim and communist countries, and it's education that's opening the door. They're sharing the gospel, for example, through the China study team, a one-year program for learning Mandarin in a university context that enables you to witness to Chinese students, and some of those students have never met even one person who follows Jesus. 
There are friends from this church who, as another example, are teaching English and other subjects to some of the emerging leaders in North Korea. I mean, there's no way to get into North Korea except with that kind of open door that education provides. They're teaching Muslim children in private schools in countries in the Middle East. They're teaching Christianity in universities in places like Vietnam through religion courses that are offered there. They're in sensitive places where we're careful not to say too much about who the person is and where they are and what they're doing, at least not all at the same time, so that you can see all of those connections, but you get the sense of the work that they are doing. These are the open doors that God is giving this church through education and If you're not sure if there's an open door for you, I challenge you to look at the back of this morning's bulletin and you'll see 10 ways for you to get connected. And if none of those connect with you, there's a little note at the bottom that says, if you need more information, contact Bruce Wilson or the office or whatever. They can help get you connected. Pray that God will use your life as a faithful, fruitful ministry of the gospel. Share the gospel through personal witness. I mean, I, even doing something as simple this morning as saying, Lord, if, 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 I, if you bring into my life somebody with an international connection, I'm, I'm just open to being used in that person's life. God is going to bring that person into your life. But there's a big difference between waiting for that person to come to you and ask for help and you taking the initiative and recognizing, okay, here is my open door. This is the person that God has given, to me, given me to serve this day. And as you're doing that, pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out more workers. I can't think of a number that would be too many workers for College Church to send out to do gospel work around the world. There is so much work to be done. I'm challenged by what Calvin said 500 years ago because it's just as true today as when he said it then. He said the kingdom of God was only just begun in the world when God first commanded the gospel everywhere to be proclaimed. At this day, its course is not as yet completed. And it is for that reason that the gospel now goes out from this church to the world, and our hope and our prayer and our expectation, believing the the promises of the gospel, is that the God of the open door will, as Calvin also said, show himself by his grace to dwell not only in one city or only in a little handful of people, but that he would reign over all the world so that everyone might serve him and worship him as he deserves. Now, it would be nice for a number of reasons to stop there, but I have to comment on that little phrase at the end of verse 9. The Scripture goes on to say this. It doesn't just celebrate the open door. It also says this, there are many adversaries. And so consider finally and more briefly the strength of the opposition, the strength of the opposition. If anybody knew about that, it was the Apostle Paul. He had preached the gospel all over the known world, and how many times he had been persecuted and opposed, how many times he had faced trouble and hardship and and distress. He had been beaten, he had been stoned, he had been left for dead, and more than once He said earlier in this very letter to this present hour right up to this 
moment, we're hungry and thirsty, we're poorly dressed, we're homeless. He's describing the the state of the suffering church in the world. We've become like the scum of the world, he says, the refuse of all things. He's talking about the opposition there is to the gospel. When he said there are many adversaries, he knew what he was talking about. The Corinthians knew it too because leaders in their community had brought Paul up on charges. They had opposed his preaching of the gospel in the marketplace. And the Ephesians were about to find it out too, because that's the city where the idol makers opposed the Apostle Paul, started a huge riot in the great amphitheater there. But you know, that kind of opposition never dissuaded the Apostle Paul or even discouraged him to any great extent. In fact, that kind of opposition is one of the things that constrained him in his calling. It was partly because of these adversaries that he knew he had to to stay in Ephesus and finish the work that God had given to him there. If you are a follower of Christ, and particularly if you are a servant in some form of gospel ministry and you're constrained by that call, you don't give up in the face of difficulty. But remember by the prompting of the Holy Spirit that that's the very reason why you've been called to take up the sword of the Word of God and raise it against the spiritual forces of evil. I was reminded of this just the other day. I was with some of the leaders of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association here on campus to share with us in the work of the Billy Graham Center. And they, and some of you perhaps have begun to hear about it because Um, It's a a noteworthy evangelistic effort. Next year, in conjunction with Billy Graham's 95th birthday, they are planning an evangelistic outreach to North America. It'll probably be the largest evangelistic outreach uh, in the history of this continent, I suppose. That's the plan. That's the goal. That's the hope. Already 100,000 churches are connected with that effort, and more will join. But it was interesting, as we talked about it, they said that already there are various atheist groups that are starting to speak out in opposition to this evangelistic effort. I mean, it's more than a year away. They're already organizing against it. And one of the leaders there in that conversation quoted this verse. He said, you know, it's like what the Apostle Paul talked about, there are many adversaries. Calvin experienced the same thing in Geneva. It took him a long time to persuade the congregation of this missionary calling that God had given to the church. And as they sent out workers, they sent them out into dangerous places. They, in fact, Calvin, as he corresponded, would use code names and write in code in order to communicate with the persecuted church, particularly in France. Some of the people there were persecuted, put in prison. Some became martyrs. Gospel work is always an unpredictable enterprise. There's never really any way to tell for sure how well it'll go. You go out to do some work of the, of the gospel, even a small thing, you're, you're, there's always a sense of apprehension about that. You don't really know what, what will happen, but I'll tell you one thing that will definitely happen when you're doing gospel work is all hell will break loose. That very seriously is the claim that Paul is making here, that the last thing Satan wants is more Spirit-filled, Bible-believing, God-worshipping, gospel-sharing followers of Jesus Christ. And so there are always adversaries. We shouldn't be surprised by that, but we shouldn't be afraid of it either. As we experience the constraint of God's call, see the doors that are open for ministry, we should believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to enable us to walk through those doors and into the lives of people who need the gospel. And as we do that, let us remember particularly 
The saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to see a man who is constrained by his calling, think of Jesus. Think of his absolute surrender to the will of his Father. Think of Jesus wrestling in the Garden of Gethsemane and asking, Lord, is there some other way other than the calling that I think is laid out before me? And the Father's response to that was, My son, you are the door. And that, in order to open that door, your life is to be laid down. And Jesus embraced that calling. He delivered us from our sins. He, he suffered the, the death of the cross. He entered into the dark tomb. And through that dark tomb, He walked through to the other side and into the glory of the light of His resurrection, which now gives power and efficacy to all of the gospel work that goes on all over the world. And in order to do that life-saving work, Jesus had to overcome His adversary, the devil himself, who was tempting him and trying to arouse opposition to him and finally doing everything he could to put him to death. But even though there are adversaries, God's power triumphs. The Bible speaks of that, that Jesus triumphed over the devil through the cross, putting him to open shame. And now because of that, we are able to follow Jesus through all of the open doors that he gives to us, no matter how many hardships we face. I invite you to remember the image before you this morning of an open door that is open to a world of gospel opportunities, and to remember that when you have those opportunities to say, now there is my door, that is a door that God is calling me to walk through. And to do that, no matter what difficulty you may face, I want to close as the musicians come up for our closing worship, I want to close with a charge that's sort of a prayer, sort of a benediction. It comes from a letter that John Calvin wrote. It was a letter he wrote to a little church that was going to be planted on an island off the coast of France, and he put the letter into the hand of the church planter, the worker that was being sent out from his church, and he said, now don't open open this until you get there. And the pastor did that, Pastor Philibert Hamelin. One of the striking things about the letter is to know that just four years later, Hamelin was killed for his faith in Christ. He was one of the martyrs from the church in Geneva. But this is the charge that Calvin had for that man and for his congregation. It can be a charge for us this morning. Take courage. Dedicate yourself wholeheartedly to God who has purchased you through His own Son at such cost, and so surrender your body and soul to Him. Show that you hold His glory more precious than anything this world has to offer. And may you value the eternal salvation which is prepared for you in heaven more than this fleeting life. Dear brothers and sisters, we pray the good Lord to complete what He has begun in you, to advance you in all spiritual blessings and to keep you under His holy protection. Amen.